Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. We live in a confusing world that does not automatically offer us that much spiritual support. So each week I talk about issues of faith in the Bible, and I hope maybe that can help fill the spiritual void. From a faith perspective, I try to deal with practical matters that help us in our present day life at home, at work, and in society. We're all subject to authorities on many levels in our lives. In our media-soaked, polarized society, it's sometimes hard to evaluate the information that we receive and thus determine how we respond to the demands placed upon us. Seeing and hearing is not always believing. So this week, I'm going to be talking about how we as Christians evaluate and respond to information and authority. I'm going to end up talking about how our attitudes toward authority may apply to a specific example, uh, to the controversy over vaccine and masking mandates. Our relationship with worldly authorities is defined in the fourth commandment, which states simply, honor your father and your mother. Now, while that commandment is narrowly written, Martin Luther, in a small catechism, expands its meaning as he does with all the other commandments. What does this mean, Luther asks? It means we are to fear and love God so that we neither despise nor anger our parents and others in authority, but instead honor, serve, obey, love, and respect them. Luther taught that not only did God give parents authority over their children, but that parental authority provided a model for civil authority. Of course, the whole chain of authority begins with God's parental-type authority over all of us as God's children. One thing that needs to be acknowledged from the outset is that the abuse of authority is never tolerated. From Luther's standpoint, parents and all civil authorities, even kings in biblical times, were responsible for treating those under authority with justice and kindness. Jesus presented the following teaching to his disciples. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Those in authority should put the welfare of those under them above themselves. Leaders are to be servant leaders. Now, the most comprehensive biblical teaching on the role of secular or civil authorities is found in Paul's treatise in the Romans where he writes, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Do you wish to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Here ends the reading. There are varying levels of authority to which we must submit. I'll deal briefly with a few of them before I get to my main emphasis on civil authorities. As I mentioned earlier, for religious people, God is the ultimate authority to which all other authorities are subject. For Christians and Jews, God's law is inscribed in the Old Testament and really comes to a head in the Ten Commandments. Another expression of God's authority is Sharia law that sets out the standards of behavior for Muslims. Unlike biblical law for Jews and Christians, in Muslim countries, Sharia law also has the force of civil law. Among Christians, different denominations express God's law differently. The Roman Catholic Church puts an emphasis on the authority of the church over its subjects' lives and its own well-developed system of canon law. Protestants, on the other hand, place more emphasis on the authority of God and Scripture in governing individual lives. Now, there exists a broad spectrum of importance that denominations place on the institution of the church, the Bible, and the clergy. All, however, recognize that ultimate authority originates with God. Another level of authority to which we are subject is the authority of our parents. Parental authority is universal across cultures. In some cultures, the mother wields the most authority over their children. In others, it's the father. For some, that authority is absolute and rigid. But in many modern cultures, parents treat their children more permissibly. The point that there's a lot of concern today that this permissiveness has created children with little respect for authority in general. Most of us, at least at one point or another in our work lives, are subject to authorities on our jobs. The boss, or the big boss, is a cultural icon. One of these iconic bosses is Mr. Dithers in the Blondie and Dagwood comic strip. Mr. Dithers is constantly ordering Bumstead to work overtime, berating him for bad job performance, constantly denying him raises, and repeatedly firing him and allowing him to return, sometimes with a cut in pay. He's an abusive boss. Unfortunately, humor also contains an element of truth. Bumstead responds to this type of authority by wasting his time at the water cooler and napping at his desk. 
the icon of the lazy employee. Another more modern representation of authority in the workplace in the comics is Dilbert. Dilbert is besieged not just by a boss, but by a hierarchy of bad bosses and inefficient or worthless bureaucrats in management. Dilbert's response ranges from quiet desperation to sometimes repressed murderous rage. Both Dagwood and Dilbert paint a bleak picture of the use of authority in the workplace. Fortunately, most modern workplaces don't resemble the imaginary worlds of Dilbert and Dagwood. Due to the more enlightened attitudes of employers and government regulations, employees enjoy a much more positive relationship with their bosses and management. A lot of money and resources are spent in HR departments developing programs and benefits that enhance employment. And at all levels, employees are trained to avoid the abuse of authority, from bullying to sexual harassment. Nonetheless, the use of authority in the workplace and the obedience to authority in the workplace is one that demands continuous improvement. Now let's get to the level of authority upon which I want to focus, civil authority. How are you and I to relate to the laws and regulations imposed on us by local, state, and federal authorities? There are three recognized types of authority, traditional, rational, legal, and charismatic. Traditional authority is power that's rooted in long-standing beliefs or practices. For example, the inherited rights of kings. Like children who are granted power that's inherited from their ancestors. It also includes religious authority that's handed down through traditions such as the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. Rational legal authority derives from law and is based on belief in the legitimacy of a society's laws and rules and the right of leaders to act under these rules to make decisions and set policy. This form of authority is a hallmark of modern democracies, where power is given to people elected by voters, and the rules for wielding that power are usually set forth in a constitution, a charter, or another written document. Whereas traditional authority derides, uh, resides in a person or an individual, because of inheritance or divine designation, rational legal authority resides in the office that an individual fills, not in the individual per se. Well, the other type of authority, charismatic authority, stems from an individual's extraordinary personal qualities and from that individual's hold over followers because of these qualities. Such charismatic individuals may exercise authority over a whole society or only a specific group within a larger society. They can exercise authority for good or for bad. As the brief list of charismatic leaders indicates Joan of Arc, Adolf Hitler, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus Christ, Mohammed, Buddha, or Jim Jones. Each of these individuals had extraordinary personal qualities that led their followers to admire them and follow their orders or requests for actions. Well, let's go back to what Paul said in Romans. 
Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Paul's pretty clear. He's talking about traditional authority, handed down. Obey civil authority because it was instituted by God and passed down to rulers so that we may live an orderly life. The rationale is that because we are sinners without some someone to establish and enforce rules, our lives would be a mess. Anarchy is to be avoided. We have to keep in mind that Paul lived in a time when the absolute authority of kings and princes was accepted and expected. The democratic ideas of the Greeks would not see the light of day for many centuries. Even what we would consider the most abusive and exploitive uses of authority, slavery, was common and acceptable and taken for granted in the Bible. Paul writes in Colossians, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Although the Bible is a source of moral truth, it must be understood and taught in its historical context, or it can be misused or abused. Supporters of slavery in the early United States turned to passages like this to justify the enslavement of Africans that supported their economy. Advances in human rights in the intervening 2,000 years have concluded on the basis of the gospel that it goes against God's will for one person to own another. That is a clear abuse of authority that comes from God. Now Martin Luther might seem to be an odd person to defend authority, He's known for his Protestant resistance against the authority of the church. He refused to obey the edicts of the church unless they can demonstrate his errors in the Bible. He regarded the church's laws as unjust. And Luther stood firm and was willing to submit to the consequences of his protest, which resulted in his excommunication. He further exhorted his followers not to revolt. In his admonition of peace, he wrote, Christians do not fight for themselves with sword and musket, but with the cross and with suffering, just as Christ our leader does not bear a sword but hangs on a cross. Consequently, revolutionaries haven't had much time for Luther. The civil authorities to which we answer today are the rational legal sort. The framers of our U.S. Constitution laid down the bases for laws and regulations that would develop an orderly and growing nation. National, state, and local governments were to use these principles to be applied in their own spheres of influence to maintain order. The power and the authority of the government was divided among the judicial, executive, and legislative branches of governments to provide checks and balances in the use of this power and authority. You know, see, the problem with the exercise of authority is that it, in its nature, it restricts freedom. Freedom and authority are always in tension. The governor of Mississippi recently spoke out against federal mass mandates. He said, in Mississippi, we are Americans. We don't believe in mandates. We believe in freedom. The issue of masking aside, 
He was ignoring the fact that in our system of government, freedom is not totally unrestricted. Otherwise, there would be no use for government at all. There are volumes of laws and regulations to which we submit without thinking. Among the most obvious are criminal laws that protect us from bodily harm and the unlawful taking of our property. Most of us have run afoul of a traffic law or two once and then have received a ticket for speeding, running a red light, or even parking in the wrong spot. We may grumble and feel that we're being picked on, but generally we pay, and deep down inside, on reflection, we realize that it would be unsafe to be on the road without the enforcement of these regulations. We're also subject to rules and guidelines that promote the general health and welfare of the public. Requirements for vaccinations, for example, have been common practice for decades in America. I have a vivid reminder of this from my youth. I was born during the polio epidemic in the late 1940s, and I remember as a little child visiting my Aunt Betty, who had contracted polio and was confined to an iron lung. I still remember seeing her face in the mirror, which allowed her to see us face to face and talk to us through gasping breaths in time with a machine that chugged rhythmically to keep her breathing. Unfortunately, Aunt Betty did not survive polio. That was probably the reason that my mother had me first in line to receive a sugar cube laced with polio vaccine in a nationwide campaign. The developer of the vaccine, Dr. Jonas Salk, refused to take out a patent on his work, which would have been worth over $5 billion. He went on to be a leader in developing vaccines and believed that vaccinating children against disease was a moral imperative. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Jimmy Carter in 1977. Today, a highly, fairly high percentage of Americans are refusing to get vaccinated and are protesting loudly against vaccine mandates that are beginning to be imposed. Some governors and local officials are also resisting the enforcement of mask mandates in schools. They proclaim that our forefathers died for our freedom. And that is true. But the Declaration of Independence, in the Declaration of Independence, those found, founding fathers statements stated, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. They went on to list dozens of abuses laid upon the colonies by King, the King of Great Britain. In other words, the authority of the government should not be challenged lightly or frivolously. Those who challenge the government's authority to require ma ma measures to stem the spread of the coronavirus should carefully consider the validity of that authority. The mandates and requirements that are currently in effect or pending are supported by our elected government and the agencies of that government. They are based on the evidence provided by the equally well-established authorities of the scientific health and medical communities that have been developed over the many years and have served us since this nation was founded. They are not being imposed by some malevolent foreign power. 
If so, Paul's admonition to obey the governing authorities applies. It seems to me, and this is my own opinion, that our greatest threat today lies not in the abuse of governing authorities, but from an unjustified lack of respect for valid authority. The problem is found not just in unjust laws, but in a refusal to obey them. As Paul says, we should obey not just out of fear of punishment, but out of conscience. And our consciences should rightly consider the welfare of others. And our consciences should be subject to the ultimate authority of the law of God's love in our lives. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace.